0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website. What is the role of art? Should art be pure and not related to ethical or political issues? These are questions the world-renowned American author Joyce Carol Oates has explored through a long life, both as a writer and as a professor of creative writing. My name is Susanna Kaluza. I am CEO here at the House of Literature, and I have the immense honor of welcoming you to this exclusive lecture with literary giant Joyce Carol Oates, who is visiting Norway for the very first time. Oates has been a towering literary presence for decades a consistent favorite for the Nobel Prize of Literature and the author of more than a hundred books, many of which have been made available in Norwegian through the wonderful work of the publishing house Pucks and the translators Bente Klinge, Tone Formo and Hilde Ling. Through her fiction, Oates has discussed some of recent history's most hotly debated and sensitive topics, frequently portraying institutional racism, poverty, sexism, alienation, celebrity culture, child abuse, and greed, among others. Oates portrays these conflicts as they are seen and felt by ordinary people, and with all their complex layers of identity and culture. At the same time, her career has seen the use of art as a battleground for political agendas, a growing trend in today's political landscape. Perhaps it is no wonder that the role of the author is becoming increasingly political. What, then, is the role of art? and does the artist have a social responsibility? Oates has made a mark not only as a writer, but also as a teacher, having taught creative fiction at universities like Princeton, Berkeley, and uh, NYU for decades, and as a central literary mentor for writers such as Jonathan Safran Foer and Mohsin Hamid. Oates herself once said, writers are not only storytellers. They are also witnesses to the world. Oates' literature reveals society's blind spots and makes us see our surroundings in new ways as only great literature can do. And in tonight's lecture, written exclusively for this occasion, Oates will attempt to locate the biggest threats to a writer's artistic freedom today and what this means for the writer and for literature in general. So I'm so happy and honored to be welcoming Joyce Carol Oates to our stage. Please give her a warm welcome.
1: Thank you you for that gracious introduction. I'm sitting there sort of mesmerized. It does sound just a, a wee bit posthumous. But I'm, and I should say, just to not, not to excuse myself in any way, I hope, but to kind of explain, I have not been asleep for a long time. So uh, we left Newark Airport, I guess it was yesterday at some point, and, and I've just been awake ever since. So I may be the only one in the room who's had this kind of con- continuous consciousness for a long time, and it's uh, sort of hallucinatory. I saw this brilliant museum here and I've been seeing this kind of one these wonderful spectacles that seem like they're in another zone from America but I'm speaking of course of the of the MoMA museum and though I had a whole talk prepared for tonight I've been so inspired I've been kind of rewriting and writing ideas in the hotel room and as I said it was sort of hallucinatory world when you're awake for so long, you're in a a kind of different dimension, I think. But I was so inspired by the beauty of the the great, one of the great 20th century artists, Munch, um, his, but seeing the paintings in person in such quantity, it's just extraordinary. It's really kind of a mystical experience. And I was thinking of how Uh, what is the role of art, which is sort of more or less the title of of this talk. I have been working on a very informal series of essays on the subject of the faith of of the writer. Actually, a book of mine with that title was published maybe 20, 25 years ago, but it's a continuous work in progress. So, like, the faith of the writer and uh, conjoining with the uh, idea of what is the role of art, I think are things that we think about so keenly. And looking at Monk, whose work is so so sensuous and so immediate, uh, you can see it, it's a little different from reading a book, which is a very subjective and private thing, but seeing the art in, in its communal and collective way with people looking at it, it's just kind of a visionary experience, I think. He, he was a great visionary. But a great artist is one whose work is suffused with meaning, so when you look at a painting of Munk, even though you don't know exactly what it means or why he chose to do certain things that he does, which are very idiosyncratic and, and special to him, nonetheless you feel it's suffused with meaning. It has a strong spiritual, emotional meaning that kind of emanates out of the conjunction of the, the colors and the, and the figures and so forth. So I was jotting a few notes, and then I'll sort of go into my, uh, my talk, which is more prepared. Then I also have the faith of a writer, the first principles. I don't know if I'll get to that. It's uh, probably about 20 different uh, ideas and notions that have come to me over the years. I'm sure there are many writers and poets in this artist, in this audience tonight. So the role of art. What is the origin of art? If you define art as an enterprise of a collective nature in which individual artists, writers, musicians, and others participate, that seems to me one definition of art. But if you mean by art primarily an individual subjective activity, that may never become a career for instance, that means something else, definitely. So there's a kind of world of art at which a museum is a visible expression and books are visible expressions, that sort of like the career or even the, the commercialization, or the, the product of art, which is what we call by, uh, we mean by culture also. Then there's the inner experience, which can, which can be radically different, and I think for many artists of any era, particularly the 20th century, and the 19th century, I think of, we think of Van Gogh, for instance, their expression, their experience of their own art was very different from the experience of other people. Subsequently, uh, I think Van Gogh made like less than 100 dollars from his work, and now one of his canvases sells for 100 million. You know, it's a kind of vertiginous craziness and dissonance there between the private, subjective, and maybe mystical experience of the creative artist, and then the world of art itself, which can be like a commodity. And I'm not being pejorative or critical. I'm just sort of pointing out that there's really an extraordinary gap. I'm not sure that people really ever talk about that that difference, the radical and, and deeply ironic difference, I think. But when we begin as... As artists and writers, when we begin, we are not careerists. So we have no idea of winning awards, and we're not rivals or competitors. It's just something that springs out of our species. I, I remember, and I'm sure you all remember, because we're, we all we have this universal background, when you were really, really little, before you could actually write, you were sort of uh, you were crawling around, you know, and, and drawing and, and coloring books, and maybe even telling little stories. Even tiny children who can't talk—they can't talk coherently—but they can kind of jabber, and, and they're sort of excited. I mean, I've heard some of this chattering. It's just so extraordinary because there's a kind of strange music to it. And obviously, they have a lot of meaning and they're really trying to say something, but unfortunately, no, yet, they can't yet talk. And I just thought that was so... I think that's so fascinating because those are the wellsprings of our creativity. And it's so far from being, you know, commodified and, you know, $100 million uh, auction or something, and yet there's a the kind of a kind of continuity there, a sort of spectrum. I think all these things are very fascinating to me. I don't know how they feel, how they seem to other people. But also with young, with really young writers, before I could write, I mean literally I couldn't write, I was scribbling with Crayolas, and there are these pages and pages of entire notebooks that my mother kept. Which is really embarrassing when people came to interview me. you know I' was like fifty years old and, and my mother's bringing out these things <laughs> just oh, look what Joyce did when she was four you know I just, oh oh, that's really embarrassing but um, but yet there's such a phenomenon, and we all did things like that, but I think most of us kind of forget about it. but there are to look at the the tablets with this inspired like really kinetic and and, and vivid and passionate scribbling, and I would look at them and think, you know, it's like it's like War and Peace, sort of. But yet it, it's all gibberish. <laughs> and yet without that gibberish uh, background, when he was two or three or four, Tolstoy would probably not have written War and Peace. sort of because the impulse that has you do the one thing for no reward, except maybe your parents and your grandparents are proud of you which also seems to be like the main the wellspring of creativity that your the adults in your family who actually love any awful thing that you do it doesn't have to be beautiful they are there to warmly encourage you and and praise you, you know, and all these uh, adjectives that are sort of bestowed upon children. And then if you're really lucky and keep at it, you know, you sort of get that continuum uh, into into adulthood and into having a career. So I'm sort of focusing on the idea of the beginning, the very beginnings which are in Kuwait and don't even have any language or goals or themes. I mean, nobody has a theme sociological theme or a political agenda when he's two or three or four years old, but yet there's a continuity. Without that, you don't go into the phases of adolescence and and post-adolescence and adulthood where the the early apprenticeship is kind of helping you, even though at the time you weren't aware of it. So I talk a little bit about the phenomenon of children how our species is instinctively creative. It may be that primates in general are creative, and maybe monkeys and chimpanzees probably imitate things too. If you gave a chimpanzee a paintbrush and some paint, if he had, if he saw somebody else doing it, he could do it too. And so children, I think, are a little bit like that. That's our primate brain. And we mimic the world in a fantastical way. Not, it's not literal or detailed. The work of children is never realistic. And it's sort of an analog to the earliest work of our species were like cave cave drawings and prim, so so-called primitive art. The word primitive is now a little bit of a pejorative, but uh, the art of many, many, you know, millennia ago has a kind of childlike simplicity to it, like an animal would be drawn with a kind of outline. You can recognize it, but it's more like what we would call a cartoon. It's a drawing. It's not rendered realistically. And then women writers and artists, of course, understand that it was millennia before we could really write about the life of the, of the body the female body, you don't find, and I'm so sorry only to make reference to English literature because I don't know other literature historically very well, but you you don't find a physical body in Jane Austen, for instance. And you don't find a physical body with a heartbeat or perspiring or doing anything that, that we all do all day, you know, all day long. In George Eliot, you know, in some of the very greatest women writers of all time, the, 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 the role of the female is almost like one of these drawings. There isn't a physicality. And there are male writers, too, in, of the same time, like Henry James, who don't give you much of a, of a sensuous sense of a real person. Then you come along into the 20th century, and women start to discover their physical selves. And once they did, or once we did, like there's no stopping us because just kind of running away with uh, getting deeply into the special experiences of women and girls and children and people who are not what we call the mainstream, which had always been white, you know, like straight white male writing, which had been a kind of cornerstone or or foundation of literature, and all these other voices were always there, but they were not allowed to be articulated. Or if they were articulated like George Eliot, they, there was essentially a kind of neutral or even masculine style rather than a feminine style. I mean, remember when Doris Lessing was publishing like The Golden Notebook uh, many decades ago now, people were really shocked and men were so disapproving because she wrote about lots of physical things that women experience normally, very normal (laughs) women, and and the men critics were so offended. The same with uh, critics in America of Anne Sexton, the great confessional poet, and Sylvia Plath, that they were writing in Maxim Kuhlmann. They were writing about things like childbirth, or nursing and or physicality in, in the most uh, kind of tender way, not cynical or malicious or satirical, but kind of just the, the life of the body and that was seen to be very shocking and offensive for a while. I don't, th- I don't think it is any longer. Just one of those things that there's a kind of evolution. So then I was talking about the children as uh, the art of children being very playful and spontaneous. And I think if you're a writer, I'm sure people in the room are writers, that you, you need to make your work to you playful, spontaneous, maybe experimental and surprising. That you may have a solemn didactic political agenda, you can be very serious and moral, and ethical, you know, but at the same time, in the form of the fiction, in the use of the language and the kind of musicality of the language, you have always to keep that pulse of that creativity, otherwise the writing will become somewhat didactic and dry, and uh, most, uh, it's most difficult of all to be a didactic, polemical writer if you don't love what you're doing. And you, you can lose the love of what you're doing if it becomes uh, too cerebral. So keeping in touch with the child inside, I have to say that I've always, I think I've really always done that. The first book that I really, that I really remember reading and, and meant a lot to me was Alice in Wonderland and Alice through the Looking Glass, which my grandmother gave me when I was about eight or nine years old. So I still have this book. It's just a few feet away from my desk in Princeton, so I can turn around and kind of see that. I also have a picture of my grandmother on my windowsill. She was very important. She was one of these wonderful grandmothers who nurtured. Then I have a picture of my parents because they also were very nurturing. It's so important to have a household for children where they feel that that what they do, even though, you know, objectively it's not that unusual, yet to them it's unusual, and, that, and they, they need to have this uh, really positive reinforcement. So beginning my, uh, my actual talk, I'm ta- I want to talk a little bit about the, th- the, the theory of whether an artist is wounded and that we write a, or create art out of a woundedness, or whether it is more like this play- playfulness and spontaneity, or maybe the two of them overlap. Quote, I have been acquainted with the night, Robert Frost says in one of his beautifully nuanced sonnets, I have outwalked the furthest city lights in a dream landscape of self-recrimination where, quote, the time was neither wrong nor right. Uh, Robert Frost was very uh, uh, self-critical. He had a lot of reason for that. He wasn't a particularly nice person. But in his poetry, he is such a beautiful writer, he, he really transcends the personal. Things that in, in ordinary life, and this is true of many great writers like Hemingway and Faulkner also, oh, many, many more than that, um, th- they, there was a smallness to their being and personality that is left behind when they ascended to their art. So the art is almost like on another level. It's as if a pretty ordinary or even vindictive and disappointing personality climbed up a little ladder and then became the the artist. And you see that again and again in many of these great artists. No one has ever lived who has not been in some significant way wounded. Eventually life wounds us in the simple living of it. Those we believe to be permanent around us, a fixed and reliable audience to our smallest dramas, begin to fall away and vanish. And how profoundly chilling it is to realize as a child, one day, you're not the center of the universe. You're not the center of others' concern. And how chilling as an adult to realize your love for others will not be enough to save them. I'm sort of at the part in my life, where well, I've been quite a while in this phase of my life, where I see you know, that the great tragedy of life is losing people. You, see, you start to lose people, and then it, just is, it accelerates in a, in a very alarming way. And that part is part of the humbling and, and kind of a shrinkage of the, uh, of the ego. There is a theory that some of you may be familiar with that the genesis of art is based upon the mysterious wound that the artist has uh, experienced, the wound, quote, that never heals. And it never heals, which is the reason that the art uh, never comes to an end. And art is a response to the wound, a compensatory strategy, in effect a kind of fierce... Denial of the primary wound. I was thinking of Freud's succinct description of the artist and his, his craft, quote, Art hallucinates ego mastery. That's a little reductive and a little cynical, but maybe in a, a kind of psychological way that, that, that suggests the great um, value of art and the great sort of therapeutic value. But ironically, art can hallucinate this mastery, even when the art is um, like Samuel Beckett, very, uh, very dark and very, uh, very pessimistic. So, which is to say that the act of creation in itself, regardless of what you're saying or how you feel, that act of creation itself carries with it, with it the transcendence. So I have found that actually in my writing, that uh, I may be writing something that is, that's very painful and difficult, but there's an elation just in putting the sentences together. And I must say that the elation can increases the more you do it, because the first draft is always painful. I think of first drafts as almost like crawling over a rock, a long, <laughs> a long rock, or another... A uh, metaphor, like with a, a, mach- a little knife instead of a machete, you got this little paring knife, and you're kind of th- cutting through a thicket. And I, I re- I'm so sort of miserable and unhappy, but I have fellow uh, novelist friends. I have about three or four of them, and we can complain to one another, <laughs> and nobody else wants to hear it, and nobody else understands it. But once you get through that thicket and get something created, then, like the next morning, you you reread it and you see, well, it's not so bad. And then you get some new ideas in the night, maybe, while sleeping in your dreams. And then you write it again, and it's really like on a higher level. And it's and then uh, maybe a week later, you go back and visit it, and you you think a new idea came in, you know, like a new sentence or a new perspective. Uh, This is the way I have learned to write. When I was a young writer, I would write kind of quickly, which I think is typical. I could write a whole uh, short story at one sitting. I mean, Laurie Moore talks about doing that too, things that you can do when you're younger, but then later you can't, so somehow you can't do that, so you have... Compensatory ways of writing, which is focusing more on on details. But now I I get I get a paragraph or a a vision, idea. I do a lot, I should say I do a lot of walking and running. And the running is very helpful. There's a hill a hill not too far from my house. I run up that hill, and I sort of feel that at the top of that hill, there may be cows and and, then, and sheep, and the sort of cowbells, and it's very, it's very bucolic. And I sort of run up that hill, and I think, I'll get an idea at the top of the hill. And sometimes that actually works. <laughs> you sort of prescribe that. <laughs> and I have a friend named Grill Marcus, who's considered one of the very best rock and roll critics in America. And Grill Marcus, for every day of his life, I've actually walked with him a couple, of, a few times. Every day of his life, he gets up early and he goes to a small mountain near Ber- in Berkeley, California. It's like a big hill, or it could be called a small, really small mountain. It's called Panoramic Hill. And every day, and he walks up that hill every day, and then he walks down where he's parked his car. He. Often has his wife with him, maybe has a dog with him, and I walked with him at one point. And Grill says he he gets he said like here when I was here and I looked out there toward San Francisco Bay, I got the idea for and he mentions one of his classic well known books, you know, and then around the corner and up up the hill a bit, there's where I got the idea for you know another another one of those books. So I'm a strong believer in that kind of. Envisioning of a story that's somehow not only inside your head, but you find it by going out in some physical way and taking deep breaths and kind of uh, you know uh, inhaling clear oxygen and looking at the sky and hearing birds and then kind of running and walking. That there's something about that magical connection between the self and maybe almost a self of, of, ver, of verbiage and language, that self being torn out of the confine, like of the, of the study or the, the computer, and being out there in the world, and suddenly the, all these different things are coming at us, and it definitely has a magical effect that's very beneficial. It's hard to talk about it because you can't measure it, but, it's, but people who do this... Uh, Definitely feel that way. So mo- many of my students go walking and running, and many of my students, maybe I suggested it, they got their ideas by doing that. And, and a lot of them write in longhand, because that's, uh, that's one thing that I suggest for them, especially if you're a poet. Writing in longhand is your special way of writing. And even though your handwriting may not be very legible, there's something that's very talismanic and magical about it. So it's like a special language. And you write your poem or you write your dialogue for your novel in your own handwriting and then take it to the, to the laptop. Then I have a... I'm not sure if I'm running out of time. Or as, I, as, as I say, I'm in, I'm in weird time. So it's like 5 to 1, <laughs> Uh, uh, I don't know, that's one in the morning or or one at night. But anyway, uh, yeah. So, oh, I have this wonderful quote. This is Elizabeth Bishop's, a uh, quote from Elizabeth Bishop's famous poem called One Art. And she talks about loss. She was a great poet of loss. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. That's a very famous poem. It's not, I mean, that's part of the poem. The poem is longer than that. But I'll read those lines again because uh, many, many people in America have kind of memorized them. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. So what do you make of yourself as someone who is losing? She felt she was losing many things, and ultimately she lost the woman she was in love with. She had a partner. uh, her, Her partner committed suicide. I'm not sure whether she wrote this after or perhaps even before that happened. Then Emily Dickinson uh, is a great American artist of loss and oblique tragedy and sorrow. And she translates these into very uh, dramatic images, but sometimes into just ordinary household images. So Emily Dickinson spent most of her life, uh, like 99% of her life, in, in her father's house, as she called it, she didn't really venture forth. A wounded deer leaps highest. I've heard the hunter tell. Tis but the ecstasy of death, and then the break is still. The smitten rock that gushes, the trampled steel that springs. A cheek is always redder, just where the hectic sings. Mirth is the mail of anguish, in which it cautious arm, lest anybody spy the blood and your hurt exclaim. I probably have to unpack a little of that. A cheek is always redder, just where the hectic sings. Hectic would have been the rose, uh, the redness uh, that meant consumption, tuberculosis, which is one of the uh, main causes of early death in in the 19th century. So she's saying, the wounded deer leaps highest. And she obviously identifies with the wounded deer. And at the same time, because she's writing the poem, she is transcending that situation. Yet most people don't cultivate an art to compensate for woundedness. Obviously there is something special, something extra about the individual. Who is to become an artist? Otherwise everyone would be an artist. The uh, I think the difference between the amateur artists and the professional artists is that the amateur is very content with the pleasure of creating their art but is probably not going to have a nervous breakdown about it or really get you know polemical or too invested in it the amateur watercolorist wants to paint something beautiful and takes a lot of pleasure in it but isn't competing with a whole lot of other uh, and, and is, isn't aware and doesn't care that the same watercolour of a, of, a, of a covered bridge or a sky or a sunset has been done like 10 million times already. Uh, if you're a professional, serious artist and you're a visionary artist, you don't want to do the same thing that 10,000 or 10 million other people have done. So that's the difference between the amateur and the professional. So the one can take a lot of innocent childlike pleasure in what he or she's doing, but the other is in this realm of a kind of neurotic anxiety about um, trying to create something original. Little children always create original things because their scribbles and scrawls are original, but, if, but in a kind of general sense, all. Most children do art that looks like, you know, every other, every other child's. It's only when you get into um, adolescence, let's say, that you start to become competitive. So, what does that mean? Taking your subjectivity to another level, where you start to be you start to be competitive, and you start to be aware of the history of your of your art. It's not just that you want to do something, you want to do something memorable that somebody else will care about. But my my feeling is that it's a fallacy to think that, that art is only a consequence of woundedness, or to use a more clinical term, neurosis, or indeed that art has any essential relationship at all with woundedness. It is as likely that art is a sustained and cultivated expression of the child's enormous capacity for playful creation, fantasizing and storytelling. And so to me, that is the more, uh, the more true wellspring of art, meaning sheer astonishing energy. Yet there are those who find themselves deeply moved by the woundedness of others, which may be more... Extreme than their own, and more worthy of attention. If art is in some essential way, a mirror held up to its time, it's also a distorting mirror. It's not merely reflecting a simple reflecting mirror. It does not care to present what it merely is. Perhaps it's worthy challenge to tell the stories of others. So now I'm sort of moving into one of the motives for for art and for writing is to bear witness for others, or to tell the stories of our, our own ancestors or our families, um, people whom we don't even necessarily know, but whose stories uh, need to be told because the world needs these stories. So I think it's a worthy challenge to tell the stories of others with as much care as if they were our own. It's a variant on the most elemental of ethical injunctions do unto others as you would they would do unto you, which su- suggests that the expression of woundedness may not be traced back exclusively to personal experience. You might, if you're sympathetic, if you have natural concern for others, to see that there are others, many others, who have not your advantages, perhaps, and might require you to be an advocate for them or to aid in those speaking for themselves and and, giving support to them, calling attention to them so that they can tell their stories. Perhaps in the end it's a powerful story that must be told that is embodied in a a singular work. And here I give some examples that are really, really singular, unusual works of literature, and yet they become uh, part of the culture. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein... You know, she wrote that when she was only 18 years old. She was pregnant. I think she had already lost a child. She had, she had eloped with Percy Shelley, who happened to be married already to another young woman. These were all teenagers. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it sort of suggests... Uh, a kind of frantic activity that almost would be outlawed in America today where people of the age of uh, Percy Shelley and his first wife were basically like high school students. That's like Romeo and Juliet in, in the classic literature. Anyway, Frankenstein is such an extraordinary and truly unique work of art, but it's, an, it's such an iconic work at this point in history that many people know what the, the Frankenstein's creature looked like a kind of this monstrous creature, whose face could sometimes be very uh, sorrowful and and tender looking, he's not supposed to be a monster. Mary Shelley doesn't call him a monster; she uh, calls him the creature. Um, but that it, the phenomenon of that kind of art is that you have created out of your own subjectivity a figure that now is in the world as if it were autonomous. There are probably, I would guess, 90% or 99% of people who know who Frankenstein is or they think they know, and they they recognize the image, they have literally no idea that this was from a novel written by a young woman in the early uh, 19th century, and that she wrote it under great duress. She had a good deal of um, emotional insecurity, and she was she was in a world where she could have been... She could have been rejected at any point by Shelley as he had rejected his first wife. The first wife was only about 15 or 16 when they got married. Then when he ran away, or he eloped with Mary Godwin, um, the first wife committed suicide. And I think that her baby had died also. So these are all sort of hedged around with great tragedy. So if the more you know about Frankenstein as a novel the more you see all these meanings are suffused within it. But if you don't know anything about it, you react to it in a very different way. Then another example I give is is Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I I won't go into because it's not part of uh, your culture very much, but you all know that was uh, an extraordinary novel that galvanized people in America uh, for the abolitionist cause to help bring an end to slavery. Uh, Slavery would have been ended in any case eventually, but definitely this novel accelerated it. So when a work of art can have that effect on human beings, that is truly extraordinary. I speak as one who was not romantically wounded into art, but rather looked up from my life, from the protective aura of my family, and saw in a near vicinity of our farm life in western New York State, a long time ago, the lives of children my age and the lives of their families. So I talk a little bit now about my own experience that I was really, really lucky, and it's only luck. It wasn't anything that anybody, uh, you know, really um, achieved. But we all have our luck. It's genetic. It's like a toss of the dice. You get born into a family that, that loves you and wants you. But I was surrounded... In my childhood, by girl girlfriends, friends of mine I knew from school, who were in dis- what we call dysfunctional families, and some of the families were broken up, and some of the families had abusive fathers. I don't want to sound sexist, but it tended to be the father who was an alcoholic or would beat his children. Now, this is a very unprosperous part of western New York State. At the very end, uh, really, af- after, but sort of infused with the memory of the Depression, people who had been very poor in the Depression, they couldn't go to school. Uh, you would have to leave school when you're about ten years old and go to work if you grew up at that time, like my own parents, who um, who had to quit school in eighth grade. They never never went beyond that. But they could read, and they and they, they grew to love literature, especially my father actually took courses as an adult, a senior citizen, as we call uh, older adults in America, a senior citizen who took university courses. So I kind of always wanted to write about the children, my friends, my, my closest girlfriend who lived next door. Their stories seemed so poignant. I had um, not only wonderful parents who loved me and they were just really wonderful people but i also had had grandparents and then i had a, i had, we lived with one a set of grandparents on a farm then my other grandmother who lived in the city had much more even more influence on me and she was the one who gave me my first toy typewriter and uh, you don't have any idea what a toy typewriter is i'm sure it it was so it was so kind of touching. It was a spiral thing, like a a wheel that you turned around, and then there was some ink somewhere, and then you would press it, and one letter would (laughs) come out, like, you know, T. (laughs) And then you spin it around, and then you find an H. So that was like my first typewriter as a toy. I was sort of, it's like movable type, before Gutenberg, kind of moving (laughs) things around. But I have to say that to this day, I still remember my, my toy typewriter. And then the next thing my grandmother gave me was like a real typewriter. Uh, again, nobody in the room even knows what that is probably. A manual typewriter, where people are actually hitting the keys very strongly, and it, takes a lo- it took a lot of actual strength. Uh, a key- computer keyboards are very different and they, they speak to a different kind of consciousness and everything is much more fluid now. That has advantages, but also disadvantages. So all this sort of came out of my childhood, and I went to a one-room schoolhouse, and there was no library, but there was like a windowsill <laughs> of books on, on a windowsill that with a little rain splattered because the window was loose-fitting, and I was in, as I said, a one-room schoolhouse, so there were eight grades, and we didn't get a good deal of attention. But I think the whole romance of books and art and literature in this world of very poor people who are working with their hands on a farm, that this would be like a sanctuary, like here's a book. you know. This is not the same thing as feeding the chickens or cleaning the nests out or gathering the eggs or mowing the lawn, which I... I used to do also, uh, lots of chores that farm children do. Suburban children of today would just, you know, sneer at. Say what? People wouldn't even. If I, I don't tell my students any of this because they would look upon me with like a, an artifact of a prehistoric uh, era. You know, the things that I was actually doing when I was their age and younger, they would never do. Like their, their parents. Like there are, machines, <laughs> there are machines that do things like that. But somehow I came out of that world in which the printed, uh, the printed book was a beautiful artifact and it was sort of precious and you really, uh, you really cherish your books. If you had seven books you know, in your whole house, each one of them was very, very meaningful. So I've written a lot about these books and one of them was Alice in Wonderland and Alice in the Looking Glass. So how am I doing with time? Should I uh, be, stop, be ending? Because I, I just have a couple more. I mean, I have like 30,000 more things to say. <laughs> I have all these pages. and I have such a nice ending, but I can't get to the ending. Uh, so bearing, so I talk about bearing witness and commemorating the past, giving voice to those voices of the muted. Then I talk a lot about specific Writers who did that in American literature, I mentioned Harry Beecher Stowe, of course, Uh, Herman Melville, Mark Twain, if you read all these people, of course. Eudora Welty has a memorable short story, Where's the Voice Coming From, which she published in 1963. She was, at that time, an older woman, like an older white woman writer, and she got into this voice of a, a, a much younger, maybe, you know, in his 40s, um, racist white man who was like her, you know, fellow citizen in Mississippi. She's the one who is educated and she's publishing in the New Yorker and she won a Pulitzer Prize. Nonetheless, she lived in Mississippi and these other people were living there too, who were, are incredible racists. And she gives voice to one of one of the uh, the racists who murdered. The uh, black man you may have heard of, Me- uh, Megger Evers, was murdered in 1963 in-, in Eudora Ruthie's hometown of Jackson, Mississippi. So instead of writing maybe a, an, an editorial or saying something polemical about this terrible deed, Eudora Ruthie wrote a short story from his point of view, and she allows him to speak. And I can't imagine what her editor at The New Yorker thought when she sent it to him, and those were the days of mail. So I don't know which editor it would have been. Maybe maybe William Shawn? I'm not sure. So he, he opened the mail, and he read this story, and it's a racist, kind of obscene, lots of racist language in it, and it's actually a beautiful story, and it has a very interesting Narrative movement, kind of surreal, and then he gets to be almost uh, weird, weirdly prophetic. And the murders, and she she doesn't shy away from the murder. She puts the murder in there, and then she has an an ending. So I give all this example as how you could write, you can write about something radically different from yourself if you have the craft and spend time at it. And meditate. Two and so two white women writers, what may what might be called a genteel class, that's Harriet Beecher Stowe, and Eudora Welty, stirred to moral indignation by the horrors of history, and daring to write. Those are just two examples, and there are many, many more. So I talk about Dickens, I talk about Upton Sinclair, uh, Theodore Dreiser. I also talk about. Some friends of mine who passed away, unfortunately, Tony Morrison, obviously. Tony Morrison, looking back to the narratives of enslaved people, especially women, and her her classic novel Beloved, which is a great work. And Edgar Doctorow, who wrote about the uh, atomic bomb spies Ethel and Julius Rosenberg in the Book of Daniel. Um, Ed E.L. Doctorow is a very great American writer and a historian. And uh, Ed said, quote, Every writer speaks for a community. And I talk about Robert Stone and Russell Banks, my dear friend who passed away in January of this year. Uh, Russell Banks is a wonderful historian and commentator of American life. His great novels are Continental Drift, Cloud Splitter, The Darling, and Lost Memory of Skin. Then there's John Edgar Wideman, a black writer, Um, a scathing indictment of what he calls the American darkness. I talk about Louise Erdrich, William Faulkner, Susan Strait, and and others. So I think I'm just going to come to an end here. (laughs) So I talk about the social involvement of the writer, but springing from that early childhood and kind of becoming more uh, more conscious and then but then I say um, maybe bearing witness and being in the world is not the only thing that a writer can do uh, quoting Milton's sonnet on his blindness which ends with a line they also serve who only stand and wait so there's an art that isn't activist and doesn't conspicuously bear witness to social and political conditions. Uh, this is an art that aspires to beauty in itself, the beauty of pure form. It may be deeply personal, but it's universal. It may be oblique and direct, subtle, an art that can be bolding and brazen, revealing intranged truths in ways that are not obviously political or historical. So, the best example probably would be Emily Dickinson in comparison with Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman did write about real things and about history in the Civil War. Emily Dickinson, his contemporary, wrote about the small private, um, you know, the tragedies and beauties of the human heart. She sometimes would have a little allusion to the Civil War, but there's nothing, nothing more than that. Then I quote uh, Wallace Stevens's poem of 1937, the man with a blue guitar. They said, you have a blue guitar, you do not play things as they are. The man replied, things as they are, are changed upon the blue guitar, (laughs) which I think is so brilliant. In this way, the world is not captured or reported upon, but mirrored. To write such a poem in 1937 at the height of the American Depression was a bold stand of the poet going against the grain of the era that said that art was supposed to be more of the people. It was Stevens who once allegedly stood up at a literary gathering to make the statement, quote, I've been asked to speak of the social obligation of the poet. He has none. <laughs> He'd get in a lot of trouble today for saying that. Also, the word he... Is a little loaded. <laughs> they have none. Well, this is a provocative remark, but it's the essence of the artist to be individual and stubborn and rebellious and ungovernable. Art for its own sake and not for the sake of society. So I have to give the example of Philip Guston, who a, was a great abstract expressionist. You probably, I don't know if we know his work. But he has a beautiful, large abstract expressionist canvases Sort of like Rothko, except more, uh, more breaststrokes, I think. And then he gave all that up. He turned his back completely on all the, his career and all the people who loved his work. And he creates these very uh, ugly, banal cartoon images. Again, I don't know whether they're even known in, in Europe. Uh, the Hooded figures that look like a Ku Klux Klan, and suddenly writing about... Th- Painting things that were like car, ugly cartoons. people were totally negative about that. He lost I think he lost his gallery, I think he lost his agent. but he was extremely <clears throat> he was extremely tra- in, in, intransigent. And every artist I know today likes that work better than the original work. Um, most people, including me, really prefer their earlier work. But that is so amazing to turn your back on one complete career and do something the opposite. In a time of crisis like the present, such quiet voices may speak as forcefully as loud voices. The small, still voice of which Doris Lessing spoke about the short story, the small, still voice. The poet in a tradition of William Carlos Williams and in a tradition of Elizabeth Bishop seeing in the near-in-hand and, d- and dailiness in ordinary life something like the very cosmos. <laughs> Subdued voice and not, not the Vedic voice, the precision of language itself, which is a kind of devotion, quote, the sentence in itself beautiful, as Virginia Woolf has said. Does an exquisitely wrought poem carry a resonance far beyond the most vehement opinion piece? Does an arrestingly original work of visual art, a work of surpassing beautiful, of problematic music, lodge more deeply in the soul than the most strident public art? The poet in the tradition of Migos, quote, It seems that I was called for this to glorify things just because they are. The way of bearing witness and the way of the blue guitar, through a lifetime we are likely to be both, and urgently we need both. Thank you.